let's just start this podcast out by saying I'm not really sure what we call this podcast anymore. There are a variety of possible options, I thought, at this stage, particularly because if you rebrand a podcast now, I mean, there are so many beautiful options like Save a Life podcast or maybe Get a Life podcast. But I think <laughs> probably for now, at least we're going to stick with the Biota podcast. I'd like to welcome back on Anton Mikhailov. Anton, you emailed me at the end of last year, just as literally in the day, I think, of that I was about to fly to Australia, saying that you wanted to have a chat, you wanted to have a recorded chat about parallelism. And I thought this was a wonderful opportunity to start the new year and talk about our various musings, uh, in my case, a summer project <laughs> that I worked on over the uh, Australian okay. summer, at least. <laughs> oh, right, right, yeah. Let's, I mean, when we last spoke, you were getting very heavily involved with a project that had a long heritage and connections to YouTube. Are you still working on that project? Are you still adding things or have you moved in a different direction? Well, the, I ran into a bit of a roadblock there um, that was, you know, porting the movable feast machine to the GPU. And the problem is, so I got a good way there and it was simulating quite large grids, um, but I actually started crashing the compiler, the shader compiler for the mm. GPU. And, uh, so that kind of opened a can of worms. And then I actually, I had some, I happened to know some, uh, friends that know people at NVIDIA and mm -hmm. AMD and, um, Google and stuff, the people that write the compilers. And I sent them the shader and they're like, Oh Jesus, this is crazy. And so that it actually apparently unearthed some ancient compiler bugs, mm. um, because it's sort of at the limit of what GPUs were, you know, designed to do reasonably. We were taking it quite off at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, we all ended up working through it. I rewrote the whole thing in, in, in on top of Vulkan instead of OpenGL because mm. OpenGL apparently is dying out and mm -hmm. the compilers are getting old and yeah, uh, rusty. <laughs> so anyway, I rewrote the whole thing in Vulkan and it does work now and it does compile. But depending on the actual simulation, it takes between five and ten minutes to compile the shader alone, mm. which is also a bit crazy. So it sounds like there's some kind of you know, some sort of uh, inefficiency inside the compiler dealing with the, the very non-standard code I'm throwing at it. Mm -hmm. um, seems to be pointing at like register allocation or something. But anyway, the whole point of the project was to have kind of fast iteration times because you can do this <laughs> sort of hot reloading stuff where yeah. you just change stuff and then, you know, Not you're running the sim right yeah, away. Certainly. And so, you know, that works uh, provided you don't sort of layer it too thick. But of course, you want to layer it thick because that's the only reason you want to do this, um, mm. you know, hot reloading. Because si simple stuff, you kind of can guess what it does a lot of the time. But yeah, it's trying to develop the more complex stuff. So anyway, it's a bit on ice right now. We have some open bugs with with uh, Google and NVIDIA trying to, you know, obviously low priority. But some, some kind of eager people are digging and seeing if... Uh, is it possible to actually make this thing compile quickly? It, it runs very fast once it compiles, mm -hmm. but it seems like there's some kind of, you know, N squared or N cubed or worse thing happening inside the compiler, probably mm. during the optimization stage. Can it unusable? But once that's fixed, I think I'll, I'll kind of come back to it. But so you know, having hit that roadblock uh, about a month before the holidays or something, I was a bit, again, but it was a bit disheartening, especially after porting the whole thing, mm -hmm. still not, you know, kind of, getting a small win, but then not a big win. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to hack on my own A-Live stuff just for for fun and try to stay away from crazy GPU stuff and just do simple CPU things and uh, see where I can get to. And that's kind of why I um, I emailed you, because I thought, okay, well, I've got some ideas that I want to try out. Mm -hmm. um, 
But yeah, like, like I mentioned in the mail, I've never gotten uh, things to parallelize well. So instead of trying to deal with GPU parallelization, I thought, okay, well, I'll deal with CPU parallelization. At least that's a sort of a less crazy devil, I mm. think. <laughs> so anyway, that was the genesis of my mails to sort of uh, relax and do some non-GPU uh, work um, just to clear my head a bit. So. Well, my word on that is non-blocking synchronization. I think that's the easiest way to explore artificial life and parallelism without getting caught on a series of, of roadblocks. And thankfully, because a lot of the nature of AI simulation is to do with information flows anyway, you get good direction and you can avoid locking, basically, uh, okay. certain parts of the, you know, the simulation. Um, that being said, it is a really fascinating way to write code. And my experience was in part sparked off by Apple and Intel's use of my simulation, but also once I saw how the, the folks at Intel were doing it, and we're talking probably about maybe 10 engineers over a period of time, I realized that there were a series of ideas that I could implement things like atomic processing and just the way I structure the code. And then later, uh, through my day job, I met a fellow who was like a guru in functional programming. I think he's now at Facebook. He went to he went from Yahoo, Microsoft, Netflix, Facebook. I think that was the trajectory. <laughs> so I knew him in his Netflix guys, and he, although he wasn't interested in simulation at all, the way he evangelized you know, large-scale information processing through functional programming just made me realize that you get parallelism for free if you implement proper functional programming methods. And mm. so I rewrote my simulation at the time using that stuff and was able to scale very easily and not hit any of the standard roadblocks or bottlenecks that mm. most people talk about. So, I mean, I think I've come to it through a variety of different sources and now particularly working on the iOS implementation, I've moved back from the functional programming aspect because I'm really returning to, you know, one, two, well, probably two, three thread models at the most uh, because of the way the CPU engages with battery. And mm. so I'm moving in a different direction there. But at the same point, these experiences teach you new ways of looking at simulation, new ways of dissecting simulation, new ways of, certainly with my own, you know, what is now called the APSTK, it's a series of simulations that are designed to be run effectively in parallel. And certainly, if not explicitly mm. in parallel, at least, you know, atomically cut in, in parallel. But it's an interesting discipline to get into in the context of you have an existing simulation idea, maybe some depth. I mean, your B stuff lends itself very heavily to this kind of a, you know, this kind of means of processing. But yeah, it is interesting. I mean, my, <clears throat> if I can give my little bit of news, my summer project for the two weeks that I was in Australia was taking a project called LibD. Now, I'm really fascinated in the kind of, I don't know, even if it's a juxtaposition or the history of machine learning in artificial life. That's a new thing mm -hmm. that I'm on. And how much of machine learning actually required concepts in artificial life and how many of the basic concepts of machine learning, like, is there a history where artificial life is critical for machine learning or is there a history where artificial life is just built on the same building blocks that machine learning is built on? With the view that increasingly, both on the lower, you know, 
Android devices, iOS devices, what have you, they now have relatively robust machine learning, you know, libraries, at least associated with the low end. And then you've got things mm-hmm. like TensorFlow and, and all this other stuff, which is doing the kind of cloud machine learning component. So in this sandwich of ideas, my friend Bob Mottram, who contributed heavily to my simulation from about 2012, 2011 through to about 2014, 2013. After he'd worked on my stuff, he created a machine learning learning library uh, called LibDeep, which was designed mm. to teach machine learning concepts to novices in very robust C code. And it really is a thing of beauty uh, because it enables you to create a variety. I mean, it's a bit like TensorFlow, but not like TensorFlow. It's a kind of curious thing that you can create Sure. All these kind of experiments, but then you can output directly real, you know, floating point math that does the calculations after the fact. So it's a fascinating pr- project, which unfortunately Bob, I mean, Bob's kind of, I don't know how one would call him. He's like, he's like one of these jazz kind of artists that moves around from project to project. So he left it in, <laughs> in one state, but I thought this could be so much more. And I have obviously a long-term legacy working with Bob historically. So I'm like, I'm going to take this project of Bob's and make it work universally. There were various issues within it and add a bunch of continuous integration tools because I'm fascinated by that simulation stuff anyway. My own project, what that work did was now I have every commit to the Ape SDK runs the simulated apes, as they're called now, for 1,250 years of different simulations. (laughs) So each time you commit, you get this huge you know, amount of data. And I'm really fascinated by how all the advances in continuous integration tools really help artificial life projects as well. My summer, which was from late December to early January, was spent <laughs> rewriting LibDeep, fixing a bunch of stuff, making it universal, removing it from the very kind of Linux-centric perspective that Bob had it and making it code that is completely generalized now and can run on whatever platform you want to throw it on. But through that, I realized that the success, because, I mean, Bob really didn't have a lot of success when he was working on the APSDK. I mean, I look, I loved his work, and I thought his work was amazing, but it didn't get, like, you know, he wasn't having tens of thousands of downloads and lots of stars mm-hmm. and GitHub and all this other stuff. When he did live deep, he started getting that crazy open-source QDOS status, which I think his mm-hmm. work deserves anyway. And it just fascinated me about, like, what I do and what LibDeep was, like, what's the distinction in terms of getting a lot of people? Well, obviously, you know, machine learning is the latest thing in terms of you need to have it on your CV if you want to work at whatever they call it, Fang now or whatever. So, I mean, I think it's only um, in our community, folks such as Larry Yeager, I mean, Larry Yeager basically, and a wide variety of other folk that we've talked to in this podcast, have been really seminal in important parts of machine learning. So mm. the the relationship, and part of this came through, what do they call it, Stack Overflow? It's not Stack Overflow, but it's connected to Stack Overflow. There was a post recently that what I call a peacock post. A peacock post is a post where the person who's posting wants to make the widest possible spread but wants to have the least possible like direct positive impact. <laughs> and so this person posted saying, you're like, what's the history of artificial life? Like, why is the... You know, why is it lamenting? Why is there no commercial success? And my view is, okay, take machine learning, and I own a Roomba. 
I wouldn't necessarily say iRobot is the pinnacle of artificial life, but at least Rodney Brooks has some history in the field and, you know, it's a commercial company. So you want to point out commercial things that have come from artificial life. I think good portions of machine learning have solid crossovers in artificial life. And let's just talk about iRobot as a thing. So, yeah, I responded. Yeah, and they just made that little biology robot uh, or biology (laughs) thing out of frog heart cells. Did you see that thing? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, look, the whole history of Rodney Brooks is amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess it's just I do kind of, you know, there is a dose of truth in that sort of question in in the sense that it's not it doesn't feel so much like artificial life because you don't have, you know, the room, but doesn't seem like it's a dog or a cat. You know, it's more it feels like a, a robot. And I think when people see artificial life videos, like whether it's, you know, Noble Ape or, or something else, that they're imagining that these worlds and these... It's called the Ape. It's oh, called, it's not called that anymore? It's no, believe me, that is no longer affiliated with Tom Barbelay. Let's just move on from that. But look, okay. let's talk about the Roomba. My view is yep. that the Roomba, as it exists in, in public consciousness, is associated with the cat riding on the Roomba. I mean, that's the that's yeah. the id of the Roomba, is this notion, and when we got our Roomba, I named it after one of our deceased cats. I mean, my view is that actually the Roomba exists in cat. It was interesting, actually, because our cats, we have four of the creatures, really wanted to break the Roomba in. Clearly, the Roomba thought it was an alpha cat, and the rest of the cats, particularly our major <laughs> alpha, he did things like he, he cornered the Roomba and then he fell asleep. So the Roomba was completely blocked and couldn't move. And he did this over maybe three or four days, which was literally j- jumping the Roomba into our cat tribe. Like, oh, you think you're the alpha cat? No, let me show you. So my perspective actually on the Roomba is it is. I mean, certainly amongst our cats, it was seen as being an entity that was encroaching on their space. And obviously we named it after a, a deceased cat. And I think in terms of the public consciousness of the Roomba, the cat riding on the Roomba is it. What say you? Have yeah, to? but it doesn't have legs, you know. Well, <laughs> most cats, most of my cats don't have legs. Like, I mean, like functionally have legs, but I mean, I think in terms of its movement and in terms of its characteristics, I mean, if you could approximate, I just, I guess, approximate all all things to dots. Basically, if you approximate right. it to a dot, then it, 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 you know, it has cat-like behavior. Right. Yeah, I think that's the. I think that's kind of the the naive, you know, it, obviously it's a bit facetious to say it doesn't have legs, but like there is something to the fact that it, it, ha- I don't think it has crossed that sort of that valley where you think, Oh, that thing is, that thing appears alive. It still appears quite automatic and stuff. It does have moments where it, it sort of does something funky and you're like, Oh, it's a bit cute. But there, there's an overall stupidity that I think isn't present in cats. Um, well, maybe you least. haven't owned <laughs> enough cats. Um, I guess my, my perspective, <laughs> Perhaps. they have the eye. The I create too, which is something that I certainly, as I've owned the Roomba for longer, I thought I really wish I could hack this thing because, quite frankly, mm-hmm. it, as you say, it does a bunch of stupid stuff, and ours certainly functions about a third of the time correctly. Again, very cat-like. So, I mean, my perspective on it is that it would be a very interesting project to start hacking the I create too, which I think is about it's about two hundred dollars from memory, mm. and it's basically the third generation of the Roomba or the fourth generation of the Roomba without the brushes, although you can, there's plenty of hacking videos about installing the brushes, and you can program it through a relatively simple operating system, like very, you know, straightforward kind of binary components to it. But it's Mm -hmm. fascinating. I mean, I obviously haven't purchased one of these things. I'm kind of trying to reduce my hobbies, not increase them. But I often wonder what it would be like if I put the Ape SDK on one of these things and let it 
productively learn our house versus the way the Roomba obviously has. And I think the other thing that I've noticed with the Roomba, having had it, although this shouldn't necessarily just be a Roomba podcast, is that um, the battery life, it really doesn't have a very good knowledge of. And I think the kind mm. of centrics that I'd want to see in A-Life programming around the Roomba, it's certainly missing a number of those components. And I really, I'm looking to work more with roboticists, I think, in the next, as we're in a new decade as well. Let's run all the cliches here, Anton. Um, I'd like to work with roboticists more because I think they probably hold some of the elements of taking the stuff that, you know, maybe we as a collective have done in a different direction. That's what I really find inspiring with Brooks's work, Roderick Brooks's work. Right. Is that he, yeah, that's, I mean, that's his whole, yeah, yeah, that's his whole, the whole piece of, uh, you know, embodiment in the world being Mm -hmm. a key part of it. There is also some truth to the, to like, the congealing of a life people like, you know, you have Brooks and then you have, well, like Steve Grant who had a studio, but then other than that, it's hard to name like sort of a life focused, uh, groups of people. Like you, you can sort of, it seems like when, when people do a life work, it's quite solitary. So oh, maybe well, that's I mean, look, I think that's that, artificial. I think there are certainly academics that are, I mean, I spent a amount of time at Michigan state university. They've got, a good school there that's turning out interesting A-Life people, many of whom, you know, end up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think also if you look at what happened, and unfortunately I, I can't remember the gentleman's names, but uh, uh, is it uh, Kenneth Stanley we've had him on? And uh, what's the other gentleman? They are now, I don't know what we'll call them, like associate professors at Uber, and I'm assuming that they're working on the self-driving mm. car stuff. So, I mean, right. I think there are a lot of names in the community, many of whom I've had the opportunity and the, the pleasure of talking with on this podcast, who do work heavily in industry. The whole notion of what's like fame and importance and, you know, Steve Jobs and all those other kinds of things. I mean, it, it's very convoluted. I think the nature of artificial life as a discipline is it's it's gone in a variety of different directions through a wide number of individuals. And the notion that what we need here is, I guess... Elon Musk-like characters, I guess. They could just say, well, I'm, you know, I'm the artificial life dude. I just don't see that as being what's happened here. I think what's happened here has been a series of, you know, academics and industry types and a few hobbyists as well. And we've all continued on with particular passions and this technology's gone a variety of different directions. I think the need to kind of catalog and describe this, I've tried to do through this podcast. And certainly if you look at the... International Society of Artificial Life, they've tried to do it in their own way. Now you've got Gecko, you know, in a conference series, you've got IEEE through conferences trying to do it. But I don't think the general public necessarily needs to know that Larry Yeager, you know, worked at Apple, worked at Indiana State, now works at Google. You know, this means that Larry Yeager's technologies from the Newton through to, you know, whatever he's working on at Google I mean, that strikes me as a really curious narrative. And the nature of peacocking, which has existed the entire time I've been developing artificial life software, is just that you'll always have some guy who's read something that likes to post on a forum somewhere saying, well, gee, what's happened with artificial life? You know, well, maybe get in contact. I mean, he listed that he, he had looked at a number of projects. He'd found the source code for my stuff and a variety of other folks' stuff, and yet he never got in contact with anyone. He just, like, posted on a 
you know yeah whatever. i certainly don't don't uh, like condone the, the the tone of the post and like yeah. you said it's it's like strangely inviting to to you know yeah it, it it's not the right vibe for sure i think i think part of the issue is that the term like a life is so broad like almost mm. even broader than artificial intelligence because mm. you know at least with artificial intelligence you can kind of imagine that it's trying to do some some reasoning or what you know whatever you want to call it that's broad enough as it is but mm. you know when you have things like robotics under the same umbrella as like cellular automata that's like such a sweeping term for a life that like you said it's applicable in so many random different areas that there's not going to be like you said some sort of steve jobs moment where they say ah the whole of artificial life has now been applied to this <laughs> one problem and it's been solved and like you said actually Roomba is probably the most sort of cohesive argument you can say like but our, Sadly, it hasn't solved vacuuming. Like, if you were to truly solve vacuuming mm. in a deep way, then at least you can claim artificial life has solved vacuuming. Mm. In, in a way that I think, you know, artificial intelligence, or I guess, you know, deep learning in the current sense, has to some extent solved, like, character recognition. Like, you know, obviously not driving, but for a large percentage of tasks, like, it has quite, uh, I think, successfully solved basic uh, computer vision tasks. Not mm. quite as hyped up as it tends to be. Um, but I think, you know, the idea that you could sort of train a machine learning model to recognize like beer cans or something would have been a really massive undertaking 10 years ago. And now it's like, you know, you can just read a little tutorial and you'll, you'll have something in a day or something. You know, maybe it won't be worthy of a factory line, but it'll, it'll get you like 90% accuracy for, for something that would have been considered like, you know, a PhD level task, uh, a bit ago. Uh, well, so I don't I, know if that means. I mean, my perspective is or... I first saw neural networks in the mid eighties. There were neural networks, simple neural networks, but I first saw neural networks in the mid eighties. It was pretty clear that these things would recognize faces relatively quickly based on processing. And I think the nature of machine learning problems, I'd love to talk to someone like Larry Yeager about this as well, because, I mean, Larry Yeager was actually there at certain points of this journey as well. Once you understand distributed processing to a certain extent, you can see, oh, yeah, this problem will be solved just by raw computation. And I think that's what machine learning has done very successfully. It's just taken problems which we knew were going to be solved by computation and wow we've got computation now and wow these things are solved and i think what's interesting to me particularly when you look at the vein of what from artificial life what the building blocks of artificial life are in machine learning what in the building blocks of artificial life aren't yet in machine learning that is something mm -hmm. that i think is really fascinating because this is an area where i look at okay how much of the ape sdk can i move into apple's machine learning library okay well this much well what about the rest well, okay, so there's some agent modeling where I could get some optimization, okay. But there's still at least half, if not two-thirds, that don't exist in any of these paradigms and actually are really fascinating ways of understanding organic problems. So mm. I think what's interesting in the field currently is not just what has been used elsewhere, but what is still there potentially to be used in you know new solutions for a variety of problems. And I think certainly... As the, we, we have a certain number of kind of undergraduates that listen to this. I know it sounds scary, but we do. And, <laughs> and my thought with these people is think about the future problem space, not in terms of what has been solved so far, but what exists. I mean, it's, I think of artificial life in some regard, like the Amazon, 
right? <laughs> the old metaphor of the Amazon that, that the cure for cancer yeah. is somewhere in the Amazon. We just need to, you know, go out and discover it with it before it burns, right? So, I mean, yeah. I think the same is true with existing artificial life. There's a lot more interesting stuff in there that has commercial applications. It's just a matter of, you know, as people have with various components, take them and and run with them in a variety of different directions and see what comes out of that. And that is certainly what I would say to, you know, folks in their late teens, early 20s that are listening to this, is that some of these building blocks are still there, haven't been explored, haven't been commercialized. And this is certainly what interests me going forward. I mean, I think it's fun what has become hyper-optimized and, you know, you can now run on your your handheld device really quickly without burning up a bunch of power. I mean, that's generally smart and fascinating, but there's a bunch of other stuff that it hasn't ha- that hasn't happened to yet and I think is still very interesting and that's what keeps me working on, on my stuff. So, 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 I mean, talking about the, the simulation structure mm-hmm. then for, for stuff like Ape SDK, mm-hmm. um, what parts, you know, because obviously you've got, you know, weather modeling and mm-hmm. agent modeling and mm-hmm. a whole lot of different systems, which of those... Just interest, just out of curiosity, which of those seem to uh, stick out as opposed to like what people are doing in um, deep learning at the moment? Well, I'm fascinated by uh, complexity and evolving narrative. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of really simple language analysis stuff in in deep learning currently. But I think what interests me is the uh, kind of interconnected points. I did a talk which is in the Biota Audio associated with crime fighting, let's just call them simulated apes. Uh, and I think that stuff is still relatively untouched. I know there's a bunch of work currently that's going into contract law associated with uh, analyzing the validity of, of non-disclosure contracts, for example. But mm. no one is using this technology yet associated with you know court transcripts and identifying multi-participant court cases where there is actual spatial distinction in the information that's being presented as a means of dramatically analysing these kind of cases. I talked while I was in Australia, I I have a luxury occasionally in Australia of meeting people that are pretty at the top of their game, and I met someone who works in the juvenile justice system, but in the uh, psychiatric aspect of that. And I was talking about the notion of crime-fighting simulated apes and what that meant and she said well immediately she works with juveniles that have long-standing court histories we've had people that have participated in the Bota podcast historically that have talked about this but the ability just to look at narrative and identify uh mental health issues i think is incredibly mm. powerful i mean there are many different aspects of this thing but l- let's talk about the ASD case specifically i think the narrative stuff is something that still fascinates me i talked to bob Mottram after I worked on uh, Lib uh, Deep, he worked on another project which was originally called Monkey Mind, then he called it uh, Lib Theatre of the Mind, which is a rewriting of aspects of the APSDK around the internal agent modelling interaction. I think there's still, you know, that's still an interesting point. I think the nature of organic external simulations is still very poorly understood. We talked with a fellow called, he was with the Santa Fe Institute, Stephen Gurin, about uh, simulation science. And I think there's still a lot of really interesting complexity modeling, which is just implicit in these simulations, which could be useful in mathematics and physics. 
So, what's an example of that? Uh, an example of that is that in certain aspects of multidimensional calculus, there's a language that describes, you know, things like curls and grads and this kind of stuff, where you ha- you need to have a language associated with these mathematical properties. Well, when you have a, a variety of agents, the agent interaction produces similar interactive things which need mathematical terms that they can go back into complexity theory and solve, you know, various problems in, in these academic disciplines. So I think the there this is stuff that interests me, but I don't have the I'm not in the academic field associated with this thing. It's just something that I've seen through observation, talk with obviously Stephen Durin about a long time ago. But it's always resonated with me that that aspect is still there, that we still lack the mathematical language, which we get in part through experience and part through running these simulations. But this could, you know, lead back into something for... And within that, the problems that are, are going to be solved are incredibly useful in economics, for example. So, mm. um, you know, this is another area where potentially, uh, you know, these tinkerings could actually give something back. And historically, particularly when I was in Las Vegas, I had connections who were, I guess you'd call them corporate economists. I don't even know what we'll call them, like speculative financiers, for example, that were fascinated by how aspects of artificial life could be used in explaining complexity in financial simulations. And I think to a certain extent, um, Justin Lyon, who was an interesting character and somewhat polarizing character who I interviewed early on through this, has actually made a business out of that in the UK. So his business, mm. Simudyne, was funded for a number of years by Barclays, the the bank in the UK. And he does basically artificial life simulation financial modeling. And I don't know that it gets into, but I I think that's an area that, you know, the artificial life community just as a means of like funding and developing, you know, that interests me as well. So, yeah, I think there's lots of different areas. It's just a matter of getting a, a new generation interested and involved. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it, it's a, it's a very complex thing to mash all these different simulations together. I think mm. in most software, you know, I sort of had this realization a few years ago after having worked on a sort of 3D package mm-hmm. that there's just, uh, some software that is vastly different than other software. Like for mm. some reason that never really occurred to me, but then I found <laughs> this sort of hierarchy of software complexity and mm-hmm. I think the number one thing is like, either operating systems or 3D packages. And then like number two is like compilers. And then it sort mm. of kind of goes down and down. And I think what's interesting is that I think most software jobs tend to be quite restricted to doing a tool or a thing that is relatively um, focused in scope. Mm. It's, there might be some system engineering, but it's, it's usually pretty confined. And it's not until you get to things like operating systems that you're really, you know, fun- mostly doing systems work and the programming is sort of, less uh less of a focus less about potentially making it run fast more kind of architecting it to to run fast or to be Mm. flexible or whatever your goals are so i'm curious if you know since uh you've had a lot of experience in that have you found like how what's the main thing that you've you've stumbled on with apes dk that hasn't been maybe obvious to other people oh i think normal software i mean what i find is certainly there's a good group of folk particularly, I mean, now Google, but historically Apple as well, that just say to me, like, kudos for maintaining this thing for such a long length of time. Because maintaining relatively complex, some would say unintelligible, I would argue that, but relatively complex software for a long period of time through a variety of changes is, is 
you know, difficult. I mean, the nature of operating systems and all this kind of stuff has changed dramatically from when I started. So I think the idea of maintaining software with a certain degree of complexity and maybe a certain degree of, I don't know, I wouldn't want to say impenetrability, but, you know, it has something which is distinct and and many people can focus on the, you know, the novelty aspect of it, I think is fascinating. Um, My evolving relationship with this thing um, comes through an ability to put ideas down, pick them up, put them down, pick them up. And for, for example, the iOS app aspect of this thing, for a few months I wasn't able to work on it. I came back to it and I was like, I don't really like this part, I don't really like that part, the visualization's not right here, I need to work on this. So aspects of the simulation have changed. I think to a certain extent it has, I mean, I joke about this, but it is very much like gardening. You know, it is very much like yeah. a, a hobby that you return to. But through that, the ability not to predict how the software is going to behave is something that I find really fascinating. The fact that I can have a kind of novel relationship with this thing. I'm just like, okay, <laughs> let, so let's see what happens when I put noble apes in an urban environment. Let's see what happens to this thing. Okay, well, we've got hard surfaces. Okay, well, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. You know, well, now I need to start debugging this because I'm not really understanding what's going on here. Well, now I need to create a new interface to understand, you know, what's happening here. Oh, that's interesting. And then, so, I mean, I think the nature of the software as being something which keeps me interested as I throw new, you know, new problems to it, or, you know, potentially if I buy a, 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 a you know, Roomba-esque open source hackable thing, put the APSDK on there, see what happens with that. I mean, I think it has an existence which is in many ways completely removed from me. It's one of the reasons I feel so passionately about maintaining it, irrespective of, you know, what third-party comedians and other things might happen, is that it has a an, it is an entity which is independent from me, fundamentally. And what I saw mm. when people use it, like when Bob Bottrom picked it up, for example, was absolutely fascinating because I get someone else gets to play with it and see, you know, strange stuff and add to it and, you know, become fascinated by, you know, let's create a simulation of the theatre of the mind within this thing and let's see what happens with the hat. And, you know, so, I mean, I, for me, it's it's a multi-level thing. It's something that I obviously get enjoyment out of, but it's not just a single kind of enjoyment. And then, of course, you've got the uh, Apple's no longer supporting OpenGL. You know, oh, I've got to rewrite <laughs> all of this. Or, you know, oh, that thing's broken in a crazy way. Or as it happened, after Apple, you know, forced me into implementing Metal, they broke Metal. So I was like, okay. <laughs> well, and you've experienced this recently, right? I mean, this has been your experience too. You start playing with right. this thing, you start getting into it. Oh, wait, I've broken the compiler. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's a whole. If you need Vulcan startup code, by the way, I've, I've got like a basic sane example that is G, you know GL esque but a bit modernized. Um, so anyway, but do you have any kind of rules of thumb for when you add these new systems in order not to like topple the the complex system that you already have? Like, do you just kind of hack in new stuff? Like you said, you know, urban environments. Do you just like plonk that right in the middle I mean, of your my, code my, base or do you have my like some it needs to be methods robust, right i mean i look everything the, the nature of this thing is calling it an apstk now is actually pretty fair because there's a shim that makes it into you know the simulated ape thing which is what you know runs on a mac or windows machine then you've got a shim that makes it into the ape sim which is what runs on ios then you have a shim that makes it into you know simulated urban environment which is the urban environment you have a shim 
that, you know, makes it run in a pitch battle warfare simulation. You know, you have a shim that makes it into a planetary simulation, but it's all based on the Ape SDK. And what's interesting in the Ape SDK mm. actually is that there are now components which exist in easily exist in other languages. Like there's a standard JSON object handling component, which obviously exists in a bunch of other languages. So it's easy to then, you know, get interfaces, say, well, I'd like this to be, you know, a server that produces HTTP responses and pumps out JSON. Well, then you can connect it up to something else. So, I mean, my view is the more stuff that uses the Ape SDK, the more robust it becomes. And when I find stupid bottlenecks in there, I have to deal with them in a very practical way. So the notion... Yeah, yeah. so you don't do any kind of architecture up front. You you let the the uses of it sort of drive where... I mean, you're always doing doing some architecture around it. You always want something that's going to not... I mean, when you have as many, you know, different interfaces and different components using it, it needs to be robust anyway. So it needs to be architected in some regard. I mean, certainly when I moved to the client-server architecture, I had to do some internal rewiring, particularly associated with, you know, the relationships of information and information changes and how this was going to work, you know, atomically in one fashion and also, you know, in vastly parallel ways otherwise. And you break out, you know, this is the time component, this is the weather component, they can run separately. You're always doing these, you know, architecture bits and pieces, but the main thing is just getting the code working in many different ways as possible. Have you have you found, I mean, you mentioned time, interestingly, like one of the core questions that I keep coming back to with every different A-Life sim that I've written is how do I, what's my model of sort of time and space? Like, mm. is it discrete time or is it analog time? Is it discrete space or analog space or is it a mixture? And do you have a, a broad preference or do you... Well, of, I've always used discrete time. Do you have time. any gotchas there? I've always used discrete yeah. time, but I mean, my view is that I've often toyed with the idea of rewriting it in terms of just event space. And I think event Mm. space actually, and I've talked to a wide variety of folk in this podcast historically about rewriting event-based simulation with the view that there's a lot of interesting, like once you get into event-based simulation, you could probably scale and distribute it a lot easier. In what I have done, because I have a physics that, you know, I have written and this kind of stuff, Obviously, discrete time is pretty central to that, but time is just a module. You could pull it out. And certainly, if you look at the way Bob Mottram writes code, he doesn't require discrete time. You could All his stuff, theater of the mind, everything, is based solely on events. So you don't mm. need a core time, you know, discrete time simulation to run Bob's stuff. You just need to pass events around. Hmm. And what about space? And um, I haven't dug enough into Ape SDK, but mm-hmm. do you have... Do you have like some underlying grid or do you do the whole thing in analog and then use grid well, for acceleration? Or? Grid is used for certain things. So, for example, a biology is based on a grid, but it's based on mm. a, a noise map grid, and mm-hmm. which means that you only need to calculate it when you interact with it. I mean, it kind of exists in a... <laughs> was like Schrodinger's cat in one regard. I mean, it's all quantum mechanics mm-hmm. in terms of Schrodinger stuff. So the notion is you only need to calculate the stuff that you're directly interacting with and the rest of it continues to run and maintain various, you know, biological principles. So when you interrogate it next, it's it's in a different ordered state. So I think those ideas early on that gelled with me with quantum mechanics, like, ah, if I'm going to make a biological simulation, it needs to be based on quantum mechanics because I don't want to be doing the calculations everywhere, but I want to be doing the calculations when I interact with the various parts of the simulation. 
So, I mean, that mm. was the nature of the biology early on in the APSDK, and it's stuck there, and it's mm. worked actually remarkably well because, I mean, through that, as you have moving sunlight, the interaction of time, the wave functions that interact with that, you get really interesting biological properties that come back but don't have to be calculated at every point at every time. So you don't, um, so you, you sort of procedurally generate, you know, statelessly the, the entire weather and temperature and sun. No, the weather, the weather is different. The sun, so the weather is done in a cell based simulation, but the mm-hmm. sunlight interaction and the weather calculation back into the biological system is all done with quantum mechanics. So the underlying wave functions exist there. And over time, they evolve as the sun moves and the rain falls and all these other things go on. But it means that you don't have to be doing those calculations at all times. You just have to be doing the calculations when you interact with them. Mm, and they evolve over time. Okay. And you can, you can map what's happening without question. I mean, I did that early on with the simulation. It's just let's show what the ant populations are doing over time as the rain falls mm-hmm. and all these things take place. I mean, does it look biological? It looks perfectly biological. It's wonderful, in fact. I've done those calculations in advance. Now, I've both Bob and I have pulled out the quantum mechanics biological simulation and put in traditional predator prey models. We've put in kind of a life cellular automata models. We've put in a wide variety of models to see well, can we switch out the biology? What happens when we switch out the biology? What happens if we actually track, you know, grass insect populations at an individual 10 by 10 centimeter squares <laughs> throughout the simulation? Yeah. I mean, we've done it all. So, the fact that these simulations can be added and removed is very useful over time because if you get bored with this and you just want to do traditional, like I think they're called Lagrangian predator-prey models, you could do those traditional Lagrangian predator-prey models. It's all available to you. The beauty of this environment is the ability that you can just switch stuff out. And as you find it interesting, I mean, Bob was fascinated by how grass grew in the simulation for a long period of time. He swapped out the, <laughs> the quantum mechanics simulation and put in like a, a grass growing simulation where the apes and the ants and all the critters and birds and what have you preyed on the grass and he did individual calculations and it looked beautiful. But honestly, it wasn't, I mean, it was comparable from my perspective to what we got out with the quantum mechanical model. So, yeah. Mm. Interestingly, I saw an article about somebody who's been uh, studying the predator prey models and apparently they've been able to replicate I hadn't known this, but apparently they haven't been able to replicate, you know, predator-prey cycles in the lab for very long. Like, mm. they can get, like, two or three generations and then things die out. But they just replicated something like 500 or 50 cycles or something. Well, the it's kind of interesting. complexity. I, yeah. I mean, the trick is the more right. things that you throw in there. I wrote a simulation in 97 for high school students called Ecosim, I think it was called at the time. I think this might still be available on SourceForge. And it was basically a, a kind of hierarchical tree, but with a variety of predator preys. I think there were about 20 of them total. You could control mm. their growth rates and their prediction rates, so their various things that they preyed on. Uh, and then you ran the simulation over time, and you could see how long you could get things to go until things went extinct. Well, actually, you could get quite good through this, and you'd start off with maybe, you know, two prey one predator, three prey, two predators, hierarchy, you'd expand it, you'd eventually get used to how to do this. And you realized as, mm. as there was more complexity, there was actually greater stability if you got some of the factors right early on. So I think what I find is that what I found through this was the more complexity you have in your predator prey models, which funnily enough, 
now, you know, if you look at when we were in Australia, we went to a dingo sanctuary. Um, I'm mm-hmm. in two minds about dingo sanctuaries, but I do like dingoes. And if you have to go to a dingo <laughs> sanctuary to spend time with dingoes, I'll go to a dingo sanctuary. Well, the fellow in the dingo sanctuary was talking a lot about the wolf models of North America. I have a co-worker that's also obsessed with the wolf models of North America associated with how to explain like wolf populations and how they grow and how they have, you know, how many litters or what have you and the impact that they have on ecosystems. And I think by recollection, it's not Yosemite, one of the national parks has this long 20 year wolf reintroduction, you know, thing that you regularly read about where actually when you introduce wolves into an ecosystem, the ecosystem becomes amazing, right? You need these higher yeah, like the, smart the, predators. <laughs> yeah, I remember I read an article, I think it was Yosemite, where they yeah. kind of, the wolves, you know, got hunted to death or something or other, yeah. and then they, all this ecosystem collapsed, and then they reintroduced the wolves to maintain the population of something or other, and then, like, in 10 years, the rivers fixed themselves, and the bears yes. came back, and, like, the berries started, like, yeah. all these knock-on effects, like, yeah, of the, of and, the, you know, when you read through it, it sort of makes sense, because the wolves ate this, and that thing stopped eating the, another thing, and then the, that's that predator grew prey there. Simulation, right? That's, that's a real-life yeah. predator-prey simulation. So, yeah, I think, you know, I find predator-prey simulations fascinating. I think if more people understood predator-prey simulations from an early age, I mean, this is why I wanted to create it for high school students, then, Mm. you know, ecology would be a different thing. It would certainly be in front of consciousness for a majority of the population. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting that most of the time they're taught with just, you know, sheep and wolves or rabbits and this, and it's Mm. usually like two things. And people don't really, you know, it feels like, oh, maybe then you add like the sheep eating the grass and that's kind of where people stop. But it's very rare you hear about somebody doing like 20 mm. different animals because I think people assume, okay, well, it's just more of the same. But I think but they miss not. this whole idea. Yeah, It's not, right? Like it's a, I mean, in the same way, I guess deep neural nets are not quite the same as shallow neural nets, mm-hmm. um, like maybe sort of functionally to some extent. But, you know, the project that I was asking you about for the parallelism is actually, funnily enough, uh, I was trying to do like an ecosystem Sim, uh, like, was your one simulating stuff moving, like, uh, kind of spatially, or or was it more uh, trying to simulate, you know, rates? It was just a numerical simulation. I mean, that was the remit, so it was very simple. It was notion of of population growth and predation around interactions on a relatively, well, I mean, it was complex because there were a lot of species, but it was a hierarchical tree. Um, Mm -hmm. So within that, I think there were two first kind of first order top predators and it went down to the grass and the fish and the fish were a constant Mm -hmm. because it was simulating an island so i made the fish a constant but you could change the you know relative constantness of the fish so those that fished on the outskirts but it wasn't in any way spatial it was purely based on rates and even just based on rates you got beautiful you know, oscillating complexity where you'd be like, ah, this mm-hmm. population's coming, ah, this population's going down, mm-hmm. you got the predation, you could see it all in real time. And I think part of it was also doing the real-time stepping. Like, you could just run the simulation yeah. and see, oh, okay, and then you'd make a tweak and then you'd run the simulation again. You'd say, ah, okay, then you make another tweak, you run the simulation again, you make another tweak, you run the simulation again. So over time, you know, in an order of an hour, say, you had run the simulation maybe a hundred times, and you started to get a sense of, well, uh, these these amphibians and these like lizards are like like they prey on things, but they're also preyed upon by other things, and they're actually like you know interesting kind of buffers 
And then, mm. you know, the veg, you start to see, you know, vegetation and trees and like, what are these impacts that these things change on a variety? You see flow throughs, you see what I would call kind of call response simulation curves where yeah. something rises, something responds, something falls, something. So you get these beautiful interactions, which you can see visually. I mean, it's graphically, but you see as you move sliders sure. and, you know, it's an ongoing experimentation. And I think while being relatively simple, it certainly conveyed the idea that the more complexity you have in an ecosystem, even with fixed rates. Now, the wolves, in the example we discussed, the, the rates aren't fixed, right? The birth rate actually is variable and is variable based on mm-hmm. interactive factors, which gets really interesting. And I wasn't simulating that with, with ecosystem, but it'd be relatively easy to add that aspect of simulation. I should point this out as well. When I, the first programming I did early on when I was about probably about 14, first commercial programming I did was for an organization called the Commonwealth Science and Industry Research Organization, the CSIRO. And it was looking at riverbank interactions both with regards to water flow, with regards to, um, you know, various kinds of algae, water plants, but also with amphibians and things that birds and plants preyed on the amphibians. So relatively complex ecosystems that existed in waterways. And that was all done through Fortran, I think. And it was all done mm. with relatively simple mathematics. Now, there was various flow theory and other things, but again, layered complexity in simulation but done with very simple tools. I think all these things should become part of the, I don't know, the kit of the early artificial life developer to get a sense of, you know, if you want to create an artificial life environment, there are these existing hypotheses. At the time, obviously, quantum mechanics wasn't a necessarily a hypothesis for how to do biological simulation, but I thought, well, I'm interested in quantum mechanics, I'm studying it. This looks like it kind of work well <laughs> on the biology. Let's put these two things together. So, I mean, I think there needs to be a, a freedom to hybridize, want a better term. I mean, Bob very much took textbook stuff. I mean, he certainly took stuff from MIT, for example, associated with social graphs and uh, social interaction, numerical social interaction, and he just implemented that. Uh, he implemented a you know blood flow model that he just picked up for academic papers. I mean, so you could, there are two extremes. You either you can take from lots of existing work and just kind of stick it together like a kind of Frankensteinian simulation. Or you can take aspects that are not in academic work and, and try your own stuff. I mean, I don't think there's a right answer to do this, although maybe the academics would say, no, no, the right answer is to take from <laughs> academic works and, and put it together in some Frankenstein. But, you know, I think what's interesting here is just that there are still, you know, many, many possibilities for exploration that folks can, can delve into. Yeah. And I think the learning aspect, like you said, is key. Even if, like you said, if it's just lines or a graph, that the fact that it comes across that you know, in, in some sense, having less graphics, uh, is better in this, that it sort of makes the idea even more clear that it's, it, it's less about just looking at stuff visually. Cause even if you were looking at these things visually, mm. you probably would still want the graphs to give you an overview because it's hard to follow things visually. Like, you know, when, when I did the, the beehive simulation, you, you can't see what's going on with 10,000 bees in any sensible way. So you start plotting these things and it sort of becomes, somewhat annoying because you're like, oh, I made this whole simulation and now all I'm doing is just like looking at statistics and graphs about it because <laughs> it's completely imparsable in the same way that, you know, real biological field work is often just all about taking lots of data points and looking at stuff. So I think, you know, in a way it's actually, you know, if the goal is education rather than entertainment, for example, then having it uh, just be numbers is better. I mean, I was actually, I came into 
like it's great to hear you say that adding more makes it more stable, you know, provided you kind of do it right. Because one of the reasons I, I was trying to do it is I was trying to make these little artificial life games. And the common problem you get is, you know, with just, you know, sheep and wolves or whatever, you try to make something and it just it's very easy to boom or bust it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make for a very fun game because, you know, you can't do much as a user. It just kind of dies out or it busts out out of control. Um, and so... I was thinking of ways to stabilize the stuff. And so I had some ways of stabilizing it in hacky ways, some ways of doing it a bit more principled. And then this new thing I wanted to try was to add vastly more species, just mm-hmm. sort of yep, that's why actually works. as a therapeutic, yeah, as like a therapeutic device. So I was like, I'll just sit here and just code random yeah. animals, for exactly. fun, you know, exactly. just knock them out, you yeah. know, just do, do a dozen, a dozen or two dozen. So I thought maybe that'll do something, maybe just by throwing raw complexity. So, so it's good to know that that's doable. Um, that's actually the solution. It's not just doable, yeah, it's well, the solution. That's great. I mean, then that could be an interesting game experience in itself is like realizing that as you add more stuff. Yeah, that's a great learning for, for somebody young, right? Like Will Wright's like, already look. done this, right? I mean, let's acknowledge Will Wright here. Like there have been right. people that have already come up with this idea. Um, this this isn't rocket science, and I think. Um, but what what game did he do? Lots of species. I mean, Spore didn't really. Well, look at SimCity. Work on look that at level. SimCity. Well, Sim- so, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to transfer from SimCity to to like ecosystems, but yeah, yeah. As in, like you know, mentally say, ah, oh, yeah, and, and therefore, <laughs> yes. well, wolves I mean, are like that too. <laughs> yeah. Wolves like industries and a, politicians, and yeah, right. <laughs> wolves are certainly yeah, like yeah, politicians. No, but of course, yeah. 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 Well, Anton, I I think we've we've covered many different bases here. We've probably whetted the appetites of our listeners for 2020 onwards and upwards with whatever this podcast is going to be called. And I mean, certainly, look, I'd encourage folks to get in contact and let's have multi-dimensional jamming sessions with a wide variety of folk about this stuff. But also, you know, it's been really fun for the past year having the chance to chat with you periodically and certainly coming out and seeing you at Berkeley as well, Anton. So thank you. Very much. In terms of your A-Life get-togethers and in terms of that kind of stuff, are you still doing that? Have you been able to you know, bring folks together recently? I haven't recently. We, we tried to get together and it sort of fizzled out because everybody was busy in the summer mm. and then I got busy and so I, I need to put my organizer hat back on and try and do it. I, you know, We had a goal of doing it once every few months, but apparently even that was too ambitious. So mm. maybe once a year now <laughs> is, yeah. the, is the new target. So we'll see. Terrific. Anton, it's been a pleasure as always. Let's not wait. It's been about six months since we last spoke, hasn't it? It's been too long, anyway. Let's not wait too long. <laughs> yeah, thanks next for having time. me on. Yeah, always a pleasure, Anton. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.